Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. In that universe where nothing matters other than which tribe you're a part of, and when you know nothing matters about legal arguments other than whether you have enough votes in the relevant body to win them, I think that's dangerous and fleeting, and it's deeply myopic. That's Steve Vladek. He's the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas School of Law. He's also the co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security website and a Supreme Court analyst on CNN. Vladek, who was two weeks into Yale Law School on September 11, 2001, zeroed in on national security law and quickly became an authority in the complicated legal landscape of the war on terror. You can check out Vladek's wisdom on the National Security Law Podcast, which he co-hosts with fellow UT School of Law professor Bobby Chesney. The podcast is presented in conjunction with the Strauss Center for International Security and Law and can be found at nationalsecuritylawpodcast.com. Today, Vladek and I explore the FISA court, which assesses U.S. intelligence agency requests for surveillance warrants. We talk about the origins of the court in the 1970s, its role in the aftermath of 9-11, and the recent audits that have revealed new problems with the system. We also talk about the controversy surrounding Trump aide Carter Page, an issue intimately tied up with FISA's future. All that, plus discussions about the Justice Department's coronavirus memo, Attorney General Barr's seeming threats to governors, and the fight for Donald Trump's tax returns. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, folks. We received some terrific news this week. Stay Tuned with Preet has been nominated for a Webby People's Voice Award for the Best News and Politics Podcast. The Webby Awards, an online institution since 1996, honors excellent content across the internet, from social media to mobile apps to podcasts. So if you like the podcast, please go to vote.webbyawards.com and vote for us between now and May 7th. This is your chance to practice your remote voting skills. Could come in handy in November. That's vote.webbyawards.com. Just type Stay Tuned or Preet into the search bar. The Webbies have even partnered with Vote.org to help register potential voters and to spread awareness about our upcoming election. Keep checking Vote.WebbyAwards.com for updates, and don't miss the May 19th winner announcement and internet celebration. Vote.WebbyAwards.com This question comes from a tweet from Eric Johnson at GoBig303. At Preet Bharara, 
even though Joe Biden has said he plans to pick a woman, is Barack Obama a legal option? Can a former two-term president then be VP? Hashtag Aspreet. So Eric, this is a very interesting question, largely academic, I believe, that gets asked a lot and has been mused on on prior occasions when elections have been coming up too, when there has been an available and alive former two-term president. In short, I think the answer is probably, I think technically as a legal and constitutional matter, I think actually Barack Obama or another two-term president could serve as vice president if picked. And you may be surprised to hear that answer, but there is some confusion on the point. And the confusion arises from the interplay between two constitutional amendments. Let's talk about them quickly. One is the 12th Amendment. Now, the 12th Amendment set up the mechanism for voting for the vice president. And in particular, the 12th Amendment says, quote, no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States, end quote. The 12th Amendment, of course, was passed at a time when people could run for president as often as they wanted and for as many terms as they wanted. So again, according to that language, if you were ineligible to the office of president, you were ineligible to the office of vice president. Now, fast forward to 1951, after FDR was elected to an unprecedented four terms. And the 22nd Amendment says, quote, no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. So you may already be figuring out what the potential problem here is. The 22nd Amendment does not say a person cannot serve in the office of president more than twice. It says no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. But in the scenario you ask about, arguably, if Barack Obama got selected to be the vice president, and then by happenstance, Joe Biden were not able to continue in office at some point in the future, by operation of succession, hypothetically, Barack Obama would ascend to the office of the presidency without an election. And so a number of scholars will tell you, well, based on the clear language of the 22nd Amendment combined with the 12th Amendment, that person who has already served two terms as president will not have been elected to the presidency, but merely ascended as a matter of law, and so is not ineligible. And that's the position that's taken by a number of legal scholars, including constitutional law scholar Michael Dorff. There is a contrary view expressed by some folks, again, probably as an academic point. For example, Judge Richard Posner, former judge of the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, has suggested, look, really what's going on here is if someone like Barack Obama or a former two-term president was selected to be the vice president for someone, they would end up being elected as vice president. And then by operation of succession, if the president, in this hypothetical Joe Biden, were to leave office, yeah, it's true that the vice president in this example, Barack Obama, will have ascended to the presidency without an election, but there was an election in the first place. And the spirit of those constitutional provisions and amendments is such that you're really being elected, and that would render you ineligible to ascend to the presidency. Look, I guess it's sort of an interesting question. My own view would be, as much as people might long for Barack Obama to come back into the White House in some capacity, it is a terrible idea. It is certainly an end run around the spirit of what was intended by the 22nd Amendment to prevent people from serving more than two terms. And even though the legal and constitutional argument may favor the idea that you could put Barack Obama on the ticket, or for that matter, George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, it's too cute by half. And in any event, I think politics and common sense would prevent that from happening at any time in the future. So we could also argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But it was a fun thing to talk about. This question comes in an email from listener Mark Specht. Dear Preet, what gives an American president the power to stop payments to the World Health Organization? Is this not also money allocated by Congress? Many thanks. 
Thanks, Mark. A lot of people have been asking about this. By way of background, you may have heard that Donald Trump is very angry at the World Health Organization and has criticized the WHO time and time again since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. He has claimed, among other things, that it is too focused on China, that it failed to do enough to prevent harm, and that at one point, although I haven't seen specific evidence of this, the WHO criticized Donald Trump's early travel ban from China. So he's annoyed, angry at the WHO, thinks they haven't done enough. And so what action has he taken? He's taken action to hold back, not necessarily permanently, but for now, about half of $122 million that seems to have been appropriated to that organization, which does a lot for global health around the world, including during this pandemic. Now, there are some members of Congress, unsurprisingly on the Democratic side, who think this is a bad idea, not only a bad idea, but unlawful. And it may remind you of a controversy from just last year when, at the heart of impeachment, recall that Donald Trump had withheld payments to Ukraine. And the Congress argued, well, you can't do that because there's a certain law called the Impoundment Control Act, which doesn't allow a president to withhold money and stop the payment of money that has been appropriated specifically by Congress. And there are some people in the Democratic Party including folks on the House Appropriations Committee, who say President Trump is violating the same spending laws that brought about his impeachment. The money was authorized by Congress. Trump can't stop it. This is unlawful. Recall also that in the impeachment case, the Government Accountability Office was asked for an opinion on the legality of the action with respect to Ukraine. And that office ruled, the GAO ruled, that the White House had indeed not followed the law. That was a fairly considerable rebuke to the president and a point in favor of the Democrats' argument. Well, it's a little bit more complicated in this case. In this case, as we expect the White House and his lawyers to argue, the aid to the WHO was not necessarily specifically earmarked for that entity. Instead, there was a larger appropriation of about $1.47 billion earmarked for aid for, quote, international multilateral organizations. And ordinarily, historically, traditionally, the WHO would have been one of those. But in the absence of a particular earmark to the WHO, and so long as the president redirects that money he's withholding from the WHO to some other international multilateral organization, presumably one that also deals directly with global health, arguably he can do that and pull that off. In this case, Democrats have also asked for an opinion from the GAO, so we'll see what their analysis is. But I think this is a more complicated question than the one relating to Ukraine, but we'll see. In any event, whether or not it's lawful, authorized by law or not, I think reasonable people can agree that while the WHO has made mistakes, while the WHO has not been perfect, and while the WHO can be held accountable and be criticized in the midst of a global pandemic when it does so many good things, the better thing to do would be to help fix what went wrong, fix it going forward, rather than choke it off of necessary funds at such a crisis. This question comes in a tweet from Colin at Cadster3108. Hi from Edinburgh, Preet. Enjoyed latest episode of Stay Tuned. The point made, Ray, March 2020 being first March in 20 years with no school shootings. Wow. Out of interest, has there been any corresponding increase in domestic gun-related incidents? Hashtag ask Preet, hashtag stay tuned. Well, that's a good question. And obviously you're referring to the notable statistic from last month that given the school lockdowns all over the United States, it was the first March in a very, very long time with no school shootings something that is good news, but horrifying that it took a almost complete national shutdown for that to be the case. So it's unclear what the answer to your question is. Statistics with respect to crimes in the home and crime generally sometimes takes a while to surface. The reporting takes a while. 
and not all local communities report specific crimes of a specific nature in a timely way. I will tell you, though, that there are two trends that, in combination, make people worried that there will be a rise in domestic gun-related incidents. One is the fairly reasonable speculation that domestic violence is on the rise. Now, the figures don't necessarily bear that out. There are some reports, particularly out of the UN, that there has been a rise in domestic violence reporting in various countries, including France, Argentina, and other places. The Marshall Project in the United States, on the other hand, has reported something interesting. There has been a drop in various cities that they looked at in the number of domestic violence reports, which people find unusual given how many people are locked down with abusive partners. And one basis for why that might be true, and if you think about it, it makes common sense, that people who are being abused have fewer private moments to call a national domestic violence hotline or to seek help or call police, and it might be more worried about retribution if they take some effort like that and also don't have places to go, don't have places to escape when they're 24-7 in the same place with someone who might be abusing them. There are just fewer opportunities to escape, fewer opportunities to report, fewer opportunities to call. Overall, crime in the United States seems to be down. By one account, in Chicago, crime is down overall 43%. But the reporting of domestic violence is down only 23%. And so there are various ways you can interpret those statistics and interpret what the dynamic is in many, many homes across the country. But I think the reasonable speculation is correct, that domestic violence is on the rise, even if it's not being reported, and we'll probably get some better measures of that in the future. At the same time that you can reasonably speculate that domestic violence is going up, the level of gun ownership has also gone up. The statistics from that same month in March, during which there were no school shootings, shows that there were 3.75 million FBI background checks in connection with gun purchases in March alone. 3.75 million. That's the most in any month since the system began in 1998. And although we don't know yet what the situation is with respect to domestic gun-related incidents, the combination of an uptick in domestic violence with the uptick, considerable uptick, in gun purchases is probably a deadly combination. But we'll follow it and we'll know more at some point in the future. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Hey folks, at CAFE, we're working to bring you thoughtful analysis on the latest legal and political news, especially in these uncertain and stressful times. So if you haven't already, sign up for the CAFE Brief. It's a free weekly newsletter featuring analysis by my former SDNY colleague and friend, Ellie Honig. Plus, you'll get links to special episodes. Despite the chaos, we've got some projects in the pipeline that we hope to share with you soon. And they're part of our larger goal, making sense of the complicated issues that affect us all. So to receive the weekly Cafe Brief newsletter and links to special episodes, head to cafe.com slash brief. That's cafe.com slash brief. My guest this week is Steve Loddick, the A. Dalton Cross Professor-in-Law at the University of Texas School of Law. Loddick is a prolific scholar, op-ed writer, and editor who specializes in the thorny legal issues of national security law. He also has an encyclopedic knowledge of the Supreme Court and frequently discusses the judiciary on CNN. Vladek has a podcast of his own, the National Security Law Podcast, which he co-hosts with his colleague Bobby Chesney. Today, Vladek joins us to break down the past and future of the controversial FISA court, from Watergate to Carter Page. Vladek even suggests some hopeful reforms. We also dive into the upcoming Supreme Court cases concerning President Trump's tax returns, whether now is a good time to go to law school, and our mutual nostalgia for nuance. That's next. Stay tuned. Professor Steve Vladek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? Um, You know, all things considered pretty good. Um, As you know, as I was saying before we before we got on, I am. you know, we've got two working parents with two kids, neither and you know, no qualifications to run a daycare. But compared to how everybody else is is weathering this thing, I think we really can't complain. And are you teaching this semester? Yep. So this is uh, our last week of online classes at UT. So I'm teaching federal courts. Um, and boy, has it been an interesting semester to teach yeah, federal so courts. So I, I have my last. Well, there's the substantive, but I was speaking more cosmetically for the moment. I have my last class at NYU Law School. It's a seminar. How do you find teaching via Zoom? You know, maybe like sixty percent of the of the classroom experience. You know, I'm, I really thrive on the in person interactions, on you know, reading the students' body language, on nonverbal communication, and you know, you just you can't do that when you've got fifty five faces in boxes on your computer. So, do you make them all show their faces so you can observe them? 
I ask them to. I, I don't require them to. Um, we've found, at least on our end, that there actually are some, um, you can sort of avoid some Wi-Fi issues if you don't have your video on. So, you know, we've told students if they don't want to have their video on, they don't have to. But, you know, even with most of the students with their video on, it's still impossible to actually track all that over the course of a class. Do you find this is maybe not interesting to other people, but <laughs> interesting to me. <laughs> Do you find that it's harder to get students to participate by Zoom? I, I find that something about the distance of the laptop makes it easier for them not to answer a question. Yeah, I think it's harder to get them to participate. I, you know, I've been trying really hard to get them to use the the chat window so that, you know, even if they're not interested in participating out loud, they can type their questions. And that's gone pretty well. Actually, the best part of that has been, you know, we have a couple, I have a couple of students who like the sort of running play by play commentary on other people's questions. Um, so if you oh, have really? the right <laughs> dynamic, it, you know, if you, if you have the right dynamic in the class, I think the chat box is a functionality that actually I think is an improvement on in class, but I wouldn't trade it for, you know, getting to be in the same room with all of them and getting to really sort of communicate on multiple levels. Right. And you have no idea how your jokes are going over, right? Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's like Saturday Night Live, right? The the one they did, you know, with um, <laughs> right. where, you know, you've got weekend update with no laughs and not even a laugh track. It's like, you know, <laughs> right. are you the only one laughing or is no one laughing? Yeah. What's this? What's the sound of one hand clapping? It's kind of like that. I mean, that's, that's sort of the story of this pandemic, right? So on to more serious topics. You have developed a reputation for and expertise in national security law. And I wonder how maybe that came about. Does it have anything to do with the fact that you were in law school on 9-11? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I went to law school in the fall of 2001, actually thinking that I wanted to work on international criminal justice. I had written my undergraduate thesis about the war crimes trials after World War I, which you know, no one ever really talks about. And so I thought, you know, that was going to be my focus. 9-11 happens. And all of a sudden, you know, we have plenty of questions on the home front about how our legal system is going to respond to this deeply traumatic event. I was really lucky that I got to get in on the ground floor of, you know, a bunch of the big cases that got brought at 9-11 because there wasn't, you know, a lot of built-in expertise. There weren't a lot of law professors who had been studying these issues for decades. And so there was actually a real opportunity for arrogant, cocky, young law students like me to, you know, to try to pitch in where we could. And that just, I was fascinated from the beginning about, you know, the role of the courts in national security cases, about how the separation of powers might differ in national security cases, and just sort of more holistically about what role law has to play in responding to, you know, to crises. So I want to talk about 9-11 in a minute, which was a big inflection point in national security law and how we go about gathering intelligence. But I want to, I want to go back a few years to an earlier inflection point, 1978, because I want to talk about the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Could you describe for us what the world of national security law was specifically with respect to gathering intelligence and doing surveillance before 1978? How Wild West was it? You took the, the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say it was the Wild West. Um, it was almost completely unregulated in the sense that the executive branch was basically able to do most of what it wanted to, at least so long as one of two things was true, so long as the target of the surveillance was outside the United States, or so long as if it was inside the United States, we just kept it quiet. Keep it quiet. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, so, I mean, there were a lot of intelligence scandals that came to light in the mid-70s, COINTELPRO, um, all these other programs that the U.S. had been engaging on the home front, um, surveilling, you know, domestic, not, not criminal suspects, but like, you know, surveilling um, protest leaders like Martin Luther King. And I think a big sign that the executive branch probably didn't think it was necessarily kosher was that it was, you know, it zealously guarded the secrets, not just that it learned from these programs, but that these programs even existed. 
And so I think, you know, the keeping things secret was a big part of the operation. And that's part of what gets, I think, really thrown into chaos in the mid 70s, because, you know, it's not just Watergate, there's all of these much broader, wider exposures of really problematic and alarming, you know, government surveillance operations on the home front, where you had CIA operating domestically, where you had FBI, you know, doing domestic intelligence. And this leads to two different committees in Congress, the Church Committee and the Pike Committee, these special committees formed in the mid-70s, basically to produce comprehensive reports on what happened and where things went wrong and how things should be fixed. And, you know, I think there's no way to understand FISA as anything other than a response to those pressures, to the congressional investigations, to a 1972 Supreme Court decision um, in a case unhelpfully captioned U.S. versus U.S. District Court, but known to posterity as the Keith case, because uh, Damon Keith was the district judge, where the court said there's no domestic intelligence exception to the Fourth Amendment, but maybe there's a foreign intelligence exception. And so Congress sort of takes all of these inputs, Preet, and says, we want to put foreign intelligence surveillance, at least in the United States, on much more of a legalistic and legally circumscribed footing. And so, you know, the the deal, which I think is often referred to as the grand bargain, is that the executive branch agrees to bring at least its U.S.-based foreign intelligence surveillance program under statutory control. The executive branch agrees to have judicial supervision in the form of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Congress agrees to conduct oversight in secret through the new House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And the courts agree that they're going to allow for you know these kinds of foreign intelligence surveillance warrant applications in secret before the FISA court. So all three branches sort of give a little to try to put U.S. foreign intelligence surveillance onto some kind of more stable, legal, and I think rule of law safer footing. You mentioned the surveillance of, of protesters and others like Martin Luther King Jr. Was that just not kosher or was that also illegal under existing law at the time? So I think, I mean, the, the law was evolving. So I think it was, it was not kosher and perhaps illegal in two different respects. First, it was not clear at all that there were clear statutory authorizations for the surveillance. Um, so a lot of what we think of as sort of the modern law of authorized surveillance, the Stored Communications Act, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, you know, FISA itself, these are all pretty modern innovations. Title III, which, you know, you know well from, from your time in the U.S. Attorney's Office, right, which is the framework for ordinary surveillance in ordinary federal criminal cases, is part of a 1968 statute. The Supreme Court's Katz decision, which really changes the law on Fourth Amendment protections, is in 1967. So pre, this is all happening against a shifting foundation of statutory and constitutional law. And so I think there were good arguments that at least a lot of that surveillance was unconstitutional, maybe also in violation of the First Amendment, but not necessarily slam dunk arguments until the law starts to change. Right. So, so then you have this sort of political cataclysm in the 70s and all these abuses and two committees. How reluctantly did the law enforcement and intelligence community go along with these reforms? You know, I, I think the intelligence community especially was pretty darn reluctant. But, you know, the politics here, I think, are so important. I mean, 1978, you know, Jimmy Carter is the president. And, you know, I don't think we've had a modern president who has been as willing to indulge 
statutes that pulled power away from the executive branch and that tried to basically, you know, sort of restore or at least reallocate power back to the legislature, like Jimmy Carter. Yeah, that's a very rare, <laughs> it's a very rare quality in an executive branch leader. And just look at 1978. I mean, in addition to FISA, we get the Ethics in Government Act that year, which, you know, famously or infamously creates the Independent Council. The intelligence community, I think, was not wild about it. But one of the arguments that I think really sold the higher ups in the intelligence community and certainly that sold President Carter is that all of this framework would actually put the domestic foreign intelligence surveillance that the intelligence community thought we had to be able to do on firmer legal footing and would legitimize it in a way that, you know, before 78, it might not have been sort of headline generating. It might not have been as controversial, but it also wasn't fully legitimized. And so I think that was the trade-off that ultimately was the the sealing part of the deal for the executive branch. Right. So it's a remarkable moment. Let's take one issue first. So post-1978, after these new laws pass, comprehensive laws, from that date on, if the intelligence community wanted to engage in surveillance of some person not an American, some person in another country, intercept their communications, spy on them in, in any form using technology, what are the restrictions on that? So that, that was the category that Congress didn't address in 78. So, you know, FISA was directed at the problem of foreign intelligence, but on U.S. soil. For non-U.S. persons, which is, you know, the term of art outside the United States, that FISA doesn't speak to that almost at all. So because that wasn't addressed, was there actually any regulation or limitation on that kind of surveillance? There were, but it was all internal. And so pre a couple of years later, we get Executive Order 12333. And so 12333 is, in many ways, the charter of the modern intelligence community. You know, I think it's actually maybe best known because one of the provisions of 12333 is a ban on assassinations. But one of the one of the things 12333 is really about is the sort of structural allocation of authority within the intelligence community. This is an early Reagan executive order. And 12333 imposes some limits on foreign surveillance operations carried out against non-U.S. persons overseas. But I think the critical thing about 12333 is those limits are all to be enforced internally by the executive branch. Unlike FISA, there's no provision for judicial review. Um, There's no expectation that there's going to be meaningful, substantive congressional oversight, even from the intelligence committees. And so we get this break between surveillance on U.S. soil, even in the foreign intelligence context, which is governed by FISA, and surveillance of non-U.S. persons outside the U.S., which is in the sort of less circumscribed but not completely lawless world of 12333. Are some people right to make the argument that that should be codified as opposed to being sort of internally regulated and and otherwise not enforceable from the outside? Oh, sure. I mean, but, you know, I think that the tricky part is that the executive branch, certainly since the Reagan administration, has generally maintained that at least some of the president's authority when it comes to foreign intelligence surveillance of non-U.S. persons outside the U.S. comes from Article 2 of the Constitution and so would be outside of Congress's power to directly regulate. I, I don't happen to agree with that argument, but I think you know one of the reasons why there's been less push on Congress and less, I think, pressure on Congress to legislate in that space is because those constitutional arguments have at least some traction and because I think the really big you know scandals that we've seen at least in modern times, post-FISA, have for the most part pre um, involved, you know, domestic surveillance, whether it's the stuff we learned about from Edward Snowden, you know, whether depending upon where folks sit, whether you think, you know, Carter Page is a scandal. Um, right. Oh, yeah, we're gonna get to we're gonna get to some of those. <laughs> but so all this just to say that I think I, you know, I think it would be really, really wise 
for Congress to, to, to take far more responsibility in this space. I just think that the here versus there line is one that at least some members of Congress have long thought was to some degree compelled by the Constitution. Just one last question on the non-U.S. persons who are in another country. I mean, is there any merit to the argument that there should not be any restriction on that whatsoever, both pragmatically and constitutionally? Why shouldn't the, the intelligence community at its discretion be able to intercept any communication up to and including, as has been reported, the private cell phone conversations of, you know, Angela Merkel? Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are arguments that affect pre- Certainly there are constitutional arguments that the U.S. Constitution has absolutely nothing to say about the rights of a non-U.S. person to have their communications monitored by the U.S. overseas. I, I guess I come back to the sort of reciprocity concerns, which is that, you know, I, and maybe this is an idiosyncratic and naive and, you know, hopelessly outdated view, but, you know, I like to think that we should be, you know, leading when it comes to the norms for communications privacy across the, across the world. And the more we set a precedent that it's just open season for, you know, the U.S. to spy on non-U.S. persons' communications outside the U.S., you know, the more we're encouraging China and Russia and whoever else has the technological capacity to do the same to us. And that has, I think, obvious national security consequences. I think it has obvious corporate espionage consequences. Um, and it just seems like, you know, this is an area where even if we're not sympathetic to the constitutional arguments, there are pretty decent policy arguments that we shouldn't just do it because we can. And that there ought to be at least some reason why, you know, particular acts of foreign surveillance are actually advancing our interests beyond just, you know, showing off that we have the capacity. Those are more prudential arguments. Absolutely. Than, than constitutional legal arguments. Yeah. And I think that's part of why Congress has historically, you know, ceded that part of the real estate to the executive branch, because easier for Congress is to say, you know, different executive branches at different times can take different positions on the answer to this question. We're going to leave them alone. But what Congress also did was retain for itself an oversight capacity so that even in those areas, they have some ability to regulate it. That's right. But, you know, I think this is, you know, one of my hobby horses has been to be fairly critical of both of the oversight mechanisms that Congress, you know, built into the 78 Act of both the intelligence committees and the FISA court. I mean, you know, I had this remarkable experience testifying at a hearing before the House Intelligence Committee in 2013, right after the Snowden revelations, where I basically got into a fight with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee at the time, Congressman Mike Rogers, whose position was maybe the fact that we haven't had any complaints come forward with any specificity, specificity arguing that their privacy has been violated clearly indicates in 10 years, clearly indicates that something must be doing right. Somebody must be doing something exactly right. But who would be complaining? Somebody whose privacy was violated. You can't have your privacy violated if you don't know your privacy is violated, right? Can you? I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think, I think if the tree falls in the forest, it makes a noise whether you're there to see it or not. Well, that's a new, interesting standard in the law. I'd like, we're going to have this conversation. Or we're going to have wine because that's going to get a lot more interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. <after> that. <laughs> um, and, you know, going back to the days of keeping it quiet. Exactly. And I just, you know, I think that in a world in which the whole point of the FISA court and the intelligence committees is to be proxies for the public, is to, you know, hold the executive branch accountable in a context in which the public has no mechanism for doing the same. I would expect greater skepticism from the overseers as opposed to, you know, more sort of capture and buy-in that, you know, it's our job to support this program. Okay. So let's talk about FISA a little more, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So I know, as you mentioned, uh, Title III very well, getting an ordinary, as you called it, a wiretap on a person in the United States for the purposes of a criminal investigation 
know, the standard is not the highest, but, you know, it's a pretty significant standard. You have to show probable cause that a crime is being committed. You have to show probable cause that the device that you're seeking to surveil is being used in connection with that crime that you're investigating. You have to identify the particular crimes you're investigating. There's a court, has to approve it. There are a lot of internal hoops you got to jump through, which are fairly significant. And there does come a time in most cases where the fact of the wiretap and the interception becomes known. If there's a criminal case that arises from it, motions can be made to suppress them and all sorts of judicial activity can take place. So that's a traditional wiretap under Title III in a criminal case. Now, an intelligence surveillance application uh, and authorization under FISA, easier to get, correct? Uh, easier, but different. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it is also probable cause, but it's a very different kind of probable cause. Instead of probable cause to believe that there's criminal activity, it's probable cause to believe that the target of the surveillance is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And that's, you know, a complex definition in the statute. But so easier to get in the sense that you don't need some nexus to criminal activity, different in the sense that, you know, it would be very hard to make the showing that a typical random American is an agent of a foreign power as compared to, you know, individuals who have substantial contacts with foreign corporations, foreign governments, and so on. Do you have to make any showing at all that you're doing this because you have some belief that there's nefarious activity of some kind? Nefarious activity pre in the sense that, yes, there has to be some nexus to the belief that, you know, this is connected to some effort on the part of the foreign power, right, to obtain information in the United States. But nefarious, not in that context as a synonym for criminal. And that's the huge difference, right? The huge difference. And, and the other word you use is, ne- is nexus, which can be fairly remote. That's right. And so, and so I think it's absolutely fair to say a one-to-one comparison of a FISA warrant application to a Title III warrant application the FISA application doesn't have to show nearly as much about criminal activity and doesn't have to show nearly as much about sort of the specific basis as opposed to sort of the general suspicion, which is a big part of why from the get-go, you know, some civil liberties groups have been vehemently opposed to FISA. I just, I, I do think, Preet, that we sometimes don't put enough teeth, right, into what it really means to be an agent of a foreign power. I mean, it would be very hard, for example, to show that someone like me, right, who doesn't really talk to foreign corporations or foreign governments ever could meet that definition. So I think the lines are not parallel or beneath each other, they're sort of skewed. So just like in a Title III, when you're getting a FISA authorization, there is a court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Who are the judges on that? Uh, So the FISA court is staffed by Originally, it was seven. Now it's 11 Article Three district judges. So these are judges who have already been nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, who are actively serving as you know federal trial judges all over the country. And they get selected by the chief justice to serve seven-year terms, where in addition to their regular district court jobs, they spend a couple weeks a year cycling through Washington to handle some part of the FISA court's docket. And does the chief justice... Uh, have to follow any guidelines or criteria in selecting the FISA court judges? No. And, you know, that's, I, I think that the interesting part of that, so there are some folks who say, well, that's a power the chief justice shouldn't have. It's a power he has in other contexts. I mean, the chief justice, for example, is the one who decides which judges sit on something called the judicial panel on multi-district litigation. But yeah, I mean, another possibility, Preet, also, if we're talking about reforms, is maybe taking that power away from the chief justice and actually having a bench of particularly qualified FISA judges who are confirmed as such by the Senate. I mean, it seems a little odd from a pragmatic standpoint that it's just sort of at the whim of the chief justice. You would presume that a chief justice appointed by whichever president would be acting in good faith and probably is trying to choose judges who were already on the bench, so to speak, who may have some expertise or have conducted uh, some proceedings in, in connection with national security matters. 
but they don't have to. And it's, it's like, it's another one of these things where there's a lot of trust being placed in the body of one person. So that's true. I mean, I think that, that there's no doubt that's true. I think the sin here, if there is one, and I think this is a sin that pervades a bunch of features of FISA, is that Congress thought a lot of this was just administrative. That Congress thought, you know, deciding which judges would be on the court would be just sort of an administrative function, one not dissimilar from what the chief justice performs in other contexts, right? That Congress sort of didn't think through all the permutations about how we could get to a point where, for example, we might look at who the chief justice is picking and say, you know, that's a biased pattern of pro-executive branch judges or, you know, get to a point where we look at what the FISA court is doing and say, oh, they're no longer disinterested. Like, I think there was a fair amount of assumption built into the 78 grand bargain, to use your word, Preet, that we could trust the relevant institutions to act in the best interest of the institution. In what context does either a FISA application or the results of the interception, you know, the actual uh, surveilled materials, ever see the light of day? Uh, almost never. Um, I think I think that the Carter Page FISA application is the first time we've ever actually seen publicly a substantial chunk of the underlying application. There's one, you know, it's possible that part of the FISA application, or at least the evidence obtained thereunder, could see the light of day in a context in which the federal government wants to use it in a subsequent criminal case. Right. That's the context in which we would sometimes see FISAs. That's right. And you know this better than anybody. It's not unheard of for the Justice Department to introduce evidence derived from FISA in a criminal case, especially in particular kinds of criminal cases. But I think if we think about the sort of the proportion of how often evidence obtained from a Title III warrant is introduced into a subsequent criminal trial versus how often evidence from a FISA warrant is introduced into a subsequent criminal trial. That's where there's a dramatic difference. Compared to the denominator, it's just not a lot of cases. Right. And the reason I ask the question is to sort of ask you to opine on on what the significance of that is for the checks on the front end. In the Title III context, it will often see the light of day. You will have some oversight. You will have some judicial intervention. Knowing in advance, and the people, you know, the human beings who are preparing the FISA application and doing the interception, given that they know their work will probably never see the light of, almost certainly never see the light of day, what threats do those circumstances pose for the accuracy and good faith, you know, pursuit of that application? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's the right question, and I don't have a great answer because I think that the answer is not much. That you know, the way the FISA process is designed you really need a healthy and aggressive court that is skeptical of the underlying application and or a healthy and aggressive oversight process that is regularly auditing these applications just because the the possibility of down the road collateral litigation of the application in a criminal case is so relatively slight and pre, and even if we get to a criminal case just to get into the weeds for for a, a quick second even there it's actually still pretty hard for a criminal defendant to have access to the underlying application. I mean, the the so-called Franks hearing, named after the Supreme Court's, I think, 1978 decision in Franks versus Delaware, where criminal defendants are allowed to you know, try to collaterally attack a search warrant. In the FISA context, it's heavily circumscribed. So I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's part of why you know, I and at least some other folks have always thought you know, the real way to have teeth in the FISA process is through the FISA court and the intelligence committees on the front end, not through you know, the hope that this back end potential will somehow create, you know, hydraulic pressure on the government to, to, to dot its I's and cross its T's. Right. Okay. So there are internal procedures as we've discussed, and some of them can be significant if they're done properly. When an intelligence community official puts into a, an affidavit in support of a FISA application, an assertion, what's the standard for being able to put that assertion into the, into the document? Does it have to be believed beyond a reasonable doubt? 
Does there have to be some good faith basis for believing it? You know, each of the facts that they put into an application needs to be supported by what? So, I mean, under, there's there's this whole body of, of procedures that are called the Woods procedures that exist, at least in theory, to ensure that there's either corroboration of the factual assertions in the affidavit or at least, you know, disclosure of the extent to which there were or were not corroborations of the of the factual environments. The tricky part is that there's no obligation, at least under the statute, for the government to provide the FISA court with everything. Um, right. And so, right. so a lot of that material just, just is retained internally at the agency for its own files, for its own sort of um, quality control. Well, not only that, but like, you know, I mean, uh, there are obviously going to be easy cases, but it shouldn't be hard to see that there are going to be cases where different reasonable people might disagree about the relevance or not of particular parts of the file that don't make its way to the FISA court. And I think that's, you know, again, that's the trap that FISA creates by not having a sufficiently robust external review process. And, you know, the FISA court can always ask the government for more information, can always, you know, send an application back um, on the grounds that it was insufficiently substantiated. But if they don't know what they don't know, it's hard for them to necessarily, you know, do that in every case. Right. I'm just, I'm trying to get at the issue of how should people understand what the intensity of vetting is on any particular fact? So for example, in the criminal context, you know, we put information into the application for a wiretap and we want to make sure that it's verified, but not every fact has its own, you know, trial before a judge and a jury and proved beyond a reasonable doubt, or you have, you know, 10 sources for a particular fact. Sometimes you'll have a confidential informant and we would always drop a typical footnote in the application that says something like, you know, CI3 has provided information uh, previously and has generally been found to be reliable, something like that. And again, we haven't proven it to an absolute moral certainty, but we have a good faith basis to believe it's true. We put the fact in and you have a bunch of facts like that that have different levels of verification. And you hope that in total, that convinces a judge to grant your application. Similar in the FISA court or less so? Um, similar. And if anything, I think I don't know this for a fact because we've only seen one of them, but based on everything I've come to understand from studying this, if you were to hold the typical FISA application up against a typical Title III application, the FISA application would blow the Title III application out of the water insofar as how much information is in there, insofar as who's signing it. One of the things the statute does is it requires actually relatively senior officials. It's changed a bit over 42 years, but still, you know, it's not just line officers at DOJ who are signing on to these applications. And so, you know, I think the mentality has been that these checks and these requirements create pressure on DOJ to really have its ducks in a row. And I think what we've seen from, you know, recent years is that that's probably true in the abstract, but there are still a couple of places where it's just way too easy for the government to just not be fully candid about potentially conflicting information about information that might actually undermine the credibility of a source they're relying upon in the application, information that in a normal criminal case would eventually see the light of day because it would almost certainly be used by the defendant, but information that in the FISA context, it's not clear where the outlet is. What do you say to some people, commentators, academics, who say, look, this is very specialized uh, material. Uh, it requires a lot of expertise. It requires a lot of understanding of how intelligence activities take place. And maybe your rank and file district court judge, federal judge does not have the proper training and background that it should be some other you know, body of individuals who decide on these questions. Any merit to that argument? 
you know, I, I think there's some merit to that argument, Preet, but of course that's also true in the Title III context. I mean, right, the, the technological capacities of law enforcement have become, you know, remarkably sophisticated, even on the civilian side, or at least the non-foreign intelligence side. But also, I mean, you know, these judges are spending seven years on the FISA court. And so, you know, they may not know on day one, but, you know, by the fourth or fifth year, I have to think they're about as expert as anybody. But even if not, I mean, even if folks are still sort of skeptical about that, my response would be then train them or better yet, right? Provide them with technical assistance because, you know, I just, I'm, I'm never comfortable with a process in which we're leaving the executive branch to supervise itself, you know, whether or not I like whoever the current president is. It's just, it's a process that's ripe for, you know, the executive branch either maliciously or negligently to just sort of relax, water down, not take seriously um, these checks. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So let's fast forward to the to the present day. You mentioned Carter Page a couple of times. There have been these somewhat devastating reports coming out of the Inspector General's office at the DOJ, talking about a lot of, depending on your point of view, mistakes, errors with respect to the FISA process in that case. And they have now taken upon themselves to look at the FISA process generally. Could you just explain quickly to folks what the major problems are that have been found, how big a deal this is, uh, and then part three, <laughs> what Congress is going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, I might, I might, I might try to steal part three and turn it into what Congress should do about it. So, Carter Page, we know now that the uh, Justice Department in 2016 obtained a FISA warrant, a classic FISA warrant, against Carter Page by convincing a FISA court judge that they had reason to believe that it was probable cause that Page was an agent of a foreign power because of some of his many connections with Russia, and that at least part of the application, a significant part, um, was based on this, the so-called Steele dossier, the dossier put together by Christopher Steele. What has become clear from a series of reports by the DOJ Inspector General is that the government's representations to the FISA court vis-a-vis the Carter Page application were not fully candid, that there were a couple places where the government failed to include information that would have put the, the Steele dossier in a slightly, I think, more skeptical light. There are a couple places where the government failed to note that different pieces of information were coming from the same source. DOJ was very careful, um, at least in the original Inspector General report, to say, we're not taking a position on whether this means we never would have gotten a FISA warrant against Carter Page in the first place. But DOJ did say, we're not sure that the reauthorizations that the FISA court gave down the line should have been granted in light of these concerns. So that, of course, set off the predictable firestorm, especially among the president's supporters, that this was all some kind of big conspiracy by the Obama administration to spy on his political opponents. 
And then the DOJ Inspector General Horowitz did something I think really clever, um, which is he said, Let, let's find out if the problems we found in the Carter Page application were unique to the Carter Page application, which would, of course, give plenty of credence to the conspiracy theory, or if this is actually a more systemic problem that is occurring across all or even many FISA applications, in which case, you know, that's bad too, but it's bad for different reasons. And so the, the DOJ inspector general conducted an audit of, I think it was something like 29 different um, FISA applications across that time period and going back a few years before that and going a few years forward. And Preet found the same problems in applications. You know, we don't know who the targets were, but across targets who, you know, we know were not Carter Page, some of whom were not even U.S. persons. And to me, at least, I think that's powerful support of two different conclusions. One, that the FISA process has some really serious structural flaws in it and inadequate internal checks and accountability. But two, that problem and not some political vendetta by President Obama against then-candidate Trump was responsible for the Carter Page process. So that gets us to, so what should Congress do? You asked what will Congress do? I actually think Congress is going to do very little. I think it's very hard for the Republicans to accept the narrative that this wasn't a vendetta against President Trump. Although the, um, there's, there's legislation on the table, right? There's legislation on the table, but what's weird is, so there were three other provisions of FISA that had nothing to do with what we call Title I of FISA, the warrant authority, that were set to expire in March of this year, and that indeed ended up, did expire in March of this year. The fight over reauthorizing those provisions, which again, had nothing to do with Carter Page, devolved into a fight over what to do about the IG reports and the, the sort of the fallout from the Carter Page controversy. And I think what we saw was there was division even within the Republicans about whether the answer is structural reforms to FISA or whether those reforms would actually undermine the president's preferred narrative that the problem isn't FISA, the problem was abuses of FISA by Obama against him. And that's a big part of why those provisions actually were allowed to expire, um, much to the chagrin, I think, of, of a whole bunch of members of the intelligence community. So what Congress will do, I think, is very little. What Congress should do, I think, is pretty obvious which is the audits that the DOJ inspector general were doing ought to be mandatory and regular, where you know, the government knows that every six months or 12 months, you know, the DOJ inspector general is going to pick out a, a random assortment of FISA applications and make sure they're, they're above board. That seems to me a no-brainer, Preet, and I think it's a testament to the politics of the moment that even that is, is too controversial for this Congress. Professor, if we can move on to things that are also happening in the country. We've got, this is the first 40 minutes I've gone without talking about the novel coronavirus, and I can't remember how long, but there are lots of legal and constitutional issues that arise from it. As we're recording this on, on Monday, April 27th, there are something like 55,000 American deaths. There's a, a raging debate about whether people should be staying at home or opening up, who's responsible for that. Could, could you explain why it is the case that the president cannot override local decrees and simply open up businesses as he sees fit? Um, sure. I mean, so I think there are two different pieces to the answer to this question. And I think the first part of the story is to separate out the president from the federal government in its entirety. So I think it would be very different pre if Congress had passed legislation under its power to regulate interstate commerce that gave the president the authority during national public health crises to shutter and then unshutter most, if not all, businesses and almost any other economic concern. I mean, I think the government's power under the Commerce Clause is remarkably broad, even under the Supreme Court's modern jurisprudence. But Congress hasn't done that. 
And so, you know, here we have a context where the federal government has not exercised, I think, the constitutional power it probably would have had to regulate in this space. Couple that with the fact that, you know, the response to coronavirus to date has really been led by local and state governments because the authorities that are on the books for the federal government, the authority the president has under the Defense Production Act, the authority he has under the Public Health Service Act, have really been used quite marginally and quite belatedly. And it's very hard to undo something you didn't do in the first place. So I think it's, it's, it's a combination of two things. One, that the federal government as a whole hasn't claimed the power in the first place to regulate these kinds of local shelter-in-place and stay-home orders. And two, that in this crisis specifically, the federal government has been so sidelined in leading the response that they've really, I think, pre-consciously left it up to local and state authorities, which is why it's mostly going to be up to the local and state authorities to decide you know, when to remove those restrictions. But we have this reporting and some suggestions coming out of the Justice Department that to the extent the Attorney General Bill Barr thinks that some of these statewide orders are too draconian, the Justice Department will intervene and take action. What possibly would that look like? Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I was I was surprised by some of the Attorney General's comments on this last week. I mean, I think there are two as, different- As were a lot of people. <laughs> I, I think there are two different things, Preet, and they look very different. So if all the Attorney General's talking about is some of the lawsuits that we've already seen, where, for example, folks are challenging local shelter-in-place and stay-home orders on religious exercise grounds, that, you know, you can't prevent my church from congregating in person- you know, that's a messy First Amendment question, although I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, the local and state governments in those cases. But it's not one that's really questioning the governor's and mayor's orders to have these requirements in place in general. And indeed, that's the only cases where we've seen the federal government show up thus far. So if that's all we're talking about, I think that's relatively small potatoes. And I actually think, you know, the plaintiffs have a, a an uphill argument in those cases. If what he's talking about is actually having the Justice Department bring lawsuits directly against states, that would really be crossing a line because we've seen in prior administrations across both parties, the federal government suing states to enforce federal statutes. So for example, the Obama administration sued Arizona when it thought that some of Arizona's immigration laws were inconsistent with federal immigration law. That's not this though. I mean, there's no claim here that Governor Cuomo, Governor Newsom, Governor Whitmer are violating any federal statutes through these shelter-in-place-and-stay-home orders. And so the best I think the federal government could come up with was some claim that these orders are somehow interfering with commerce, but there's no precedent for the federal government to bring that kind of lawsuit. And I just, I think there are good reasons why there's no precedent for that. So to me, a lot of this is just sort of optics and trying to sort of put political pressure on local and state officials to you know, accelerate their reopening plans as much as possible. I'd be very surprised if we end up with a case called the United States versus New York that actually tees that issue up for the courts. Another funny pattern you see coming out of the White House is the president likes to assert broad authority for various things, including his ability to pardon himself, pardon anybody he wants, which is largely true. But then also say things like, I can open up the country, but then he doesn't follow through on it or he withdraws from it. Do you, do you think he's actually getting advice? I know this is speculative, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think he's actually getting advice or counsel from people within the White House or the Justice Department, or he is just sort of engaging in public wishful thinking? I think it's probably some combination of both. I mean, just from outside outside appearances. I mean, I think the president is not one to sort of check the facts first and then speak. And so I think there are plenty of contexts where the president claims the power to do something and then goes back to the lawyers and they either say, yes, you can do it, but it would be bad, or no, you can't do it. And so, you know, never actually walks it back. You just, you just don't hear of it again. 
I think a lot of folks were surprised by the broad claims the president made of authority over states, because, you know, at least for many conservatives, you know, the principle of states' rights is actually a pretty powerful part of their constitutional philosophy. And the notion that the president could trample on that just because we like the current president would set a pretty bad precedent for the next one. So I guess my reaction is some of this, I think, is the president just talking off the cuff and out of a certain part of his rear. And I think some of it is also that this has been Trump's MO forever, which is he talks a big game, but you know, rarely backs it up. Whether he doesn't back it up because he's told he can't, whether he doesn't back it up because you know he'd much rather have the headline than the substance. I mean, I think you know different folks are going to disagree about why. But you know, to me, every time he says, "Oh yeah, I, you know, I have this authority, and we're going to provide a legal brief that tells you why," you know, I'm I'm not holding my breath for that legal brief. I'm not going to go on to the next question without noting for the record that rather than use a certain three-letter word, you said a certain part of his rear. <laughs> I find well, you know, very I, professorial. I'm just I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to keep podcast. it at least. Uh, I mean I'm, I'm a New Yorker. You know you're 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 basically a New Yorker. I mean you know we you know. I know I appreciate. It. I was I was impressed by that. So speaking of DOJ and and COVID-19, here's something else that sort of caught some people's eyes in the last month. So the Department of Justice put out guidance, a memorandum to people within the department, which is a good thing to do, reminding uh, assistant U.S. attorneys and other criminal investigators and agents around the country to be on the lookout for people taking advantage of the crisis. And you can imagine all kinds of uh, frauds and scams and, and counterfeit goods, trafficking and all sorts of bad things that bad people engage in when there's a time of crisis. And that's all well and good and I think is useful guidance. But there's one aspect of the guidance that was sort of interesting. And it basically says that the department should consider in appropriate cases treating COVID-19 as a biological agent, therefore potentially bringing to bear anti-terrorism laws. And what's interesting to me is, you know, usually when you provide guidance like that, it's pretty definitive. But even here, it seems like there's a hedge. And the line from the document says, quote, because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a biological agent under a particular statute, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. What do you make of that? It's not anthrax. It's not, it's not an engineered biochemical or biological weapon. So yeah, what do you, what do you make of that? I don't know exactly what to make of it. I mean, to, to sort of, let me, let me start there, which is to say, you know, again, I think there are two very different explanations here, one of which is entirely benign and one of which is not. And so let me start with the benign one. I think the benign explanation is looking for any possible sort of thread on which to rest federal investigative authority, just because, as you said, I mean, I think we can all have common cause in it being not just important, but useful for the Justice Department to be actively involved in prosecuting incidents arising out of exploitation of coronavirus, fraud, waste, abuse, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think the benign explanation is just the federal government looking for any possible jurisdictional hook for its authority, which of course is not as limitless and not as sort of open-ended as local and state authority. The less benign explanation and the one that sort of makes me a little bit more wary about this kind of statement, and one I probably wouldn't even give two thoughts to in a different administration, is the narrative that's being pushed by certain of the president's supporters, that this really is a biological attack, that the coronavirus was manufactured by China, that it's a weapon being used against us, and so on and so forth. And I think it is remarkably dangerous for the Justice Department to be taking any steps that could be perceived as endorsing that narrative without significant evidence and support. 
And, you know, at least to me, I haven't seen any real significant evidence of that yet. So it's such a common theme for me with this administration, which is there are so often multiple explanations, one of which is harmless, one of which is not. And I want to generally sort of give the government the benefit of the doubt, but it is increasingly hard to do that with this administration, which is why I found that part of the memo particularly eye-opening. So I can't let you go without talking about some Supreme Court news. And just to remind people that there are three cases that involve attempts to get financial information from the president. There's uh, Trump v. Mazar, Trump v. Deutsche Bank, and Trump v. Vance. And these are cases that revolve around whether or not the president can prevent third parties from disclosing his financial records, tax records, et cetera. And with respect to two of those cases, uh, both involving congressional attempts to get information, the Supreme Court has asked for supplemental briefing. What's this all about? Good question. Um, so the, these are cases that the court was re- originally supposed to hear last week, um, and that because of the virus got postponed to May 12th, when the court's going to hear them over the telephone. The supplemental briefing order, which is really unusual, especially this close to argument, um, asks the parties and the SG, um, the Solicitor General, who's a friend of the, who's on the president's side, but not a party, to address whether uh, the political question doctrine or other so-called justiciability doctrines, basically limitations on the ability of courts to hear things that aren't concrete cases, might prevent the court from reaching the merits of at least the two congressional subpoena cases, the Mazars case from the D.C. Circuit, the Deutsche Bank case from the Second Circuit. And it doesn't tell us anything about who issued this order or why. So all we can do is speculate. But what I, my reaction to it, Preet, is that this is a sign of two things. One, that some number of the justices are looking for an off-ramp. Um, that is to say, some way of deciding these cases that doesn't require them to actually decide them. And to decide right. whether- In other words, by, by relying on, on the doctrine, as you mentioned, uh, the political question doctrine that says, yeah, you know what? It's a dispute between the two other branches of government in this respect, and uh, we're going to keep our hands off it. And so whatever the status quo is, is the status quo, and we're not going to get involved. Exactly. And so, so let's play that out for a second. If that's what's going on here, and it's not hard to imagine why that would appeal to someone like, say, Chief Justice Roberts- if that's what's going on here, it would mean Trump would lose these cases because if there's, you know, Trump is the plaintiff in these cases. He is trying to prevent Mazars and Deutsche Bank from voluntarily complying with congressional subpoenas. And so if the courts aren't going to be part of that conversation, then I think it stands to reason that Mazars and Deutsche Bank would voluntarily comply. The problem is that there's a whole bunch of other cases where the issue is not the president trying to stop voluntary compliance, but rather Congress trying to force involuntary compliance. The Don McGahn case, I think, is the lead of these, and that's now before the the full D.C. Circuit. Imagine a ruling from the Supreme Court that these kinds of disputes, disputes over congressional subpoenas to the president, are categorically non-justiciable. The courts can't ever hear them. That's, I think, a loss for Trump in the short term because Mazars and Deutsche Bank will comply, but it's a huge win for the presidency in the long term because it suggests that all the president has to do is defy a subpoena. And as long as the political consequences aren't dire, the courts aren't going to stop him. What does that do for congressional oversight going forward in this country? So in the short term, I think it dramatically weakens it. In the long term, I think it changes the structure of it in ways that I'm not sure are healthy. So my dear friend Josh Chaffetz has a great book called Congress's Constitution. Josh is uh, at Georgetown Law. And one of the things that Josh argues in his book is that 
Congress has become too reliant on the courts to bail it out, that the, historically Congress had its own ways of inducing and coercing executive branch oversight. Congress would not fund the executive branch until it complied with subpoenas. Congress would exercise its inherent contempt power where it actually detained recalcitrant witnesses in the old Capitol jail. Josh is of the view that it would be healthier for us to go back to those mechanisms. I respectfully disagree, but I think that would be all we'd be left to in a world in which the courts said, this is not our problem. And in that regard, it's reminiscent to me of the Supreme Court's ruling in 1974 in the Watergate tapes case, where the court you know, famously and unanimously rules against President Nixon, but actually issues the executive branch a huge win by saying there is this constitutionally grounded privilege called executive privilege. It just doesn't apply in this case. And the famous line about Nixon is that, you know, Nixon lost, but the presidency won. And I think if this is, if this briefing order is not just a detour, and it might be, I mean, this could all just be a frolic, but if this briefing order is an indicative of where the Supreme Court might come down, I think it would be a similar headline that Trump would lose, but the real winner would be the presidency and the real loser would be Congress. You've written, as some others have, about the importance the court sometimes places on a unanimous vote. Even if there are differences of opinion, interstitially, there are certain cases that the Supreme Court has found to be important enough that they wanted to speak with one voice, and it was important for the country to see them speak with one voice. And you've also said, you know, engage in the thought experiment, the Nixon case you just mentioned and others like it. Suppose you had a fractured court, and it was a, an ideological split along conservative and liberal lines, and you had a 5-4 decision. To what extent does that maybe invite a president like Nixon or, in our circumstances, Trump? to defy the Supreme Court order. So for example, in, in one or more of these cases coming up, do you think there's a realistic concern that if it's a 5-4 case against the president in, in this or other cases, that he might be inclined to defy the ruling? And if so, how does that play out? So I think in general, I, I certainly think there is a greater concern that this president on the far side of a 5-4 ruling, where it's the chief justice in particular who joins with the, the four more progressive justices, I certainly think there's more of a, a risk that he would defy it. I think that, you know, he is more willing to indulge in assaults on institutions than any of his predecessors. If I can sort of end on a, a, a note of cautious optimism, these cases, just because of the peculiar way they're structured, probably aren't they. Because, you know, unlike the Nixon case in 74, where, you know, Nixon actually spent the better part of a couple of days deciding whether or not to comply with the Supreme Court decision and turn over the tapes. Here, this is Trump as the plaintiff trying to block. Right. It's right, third Mazars parties. And it's not him himself, right? Right. It's not third parties. And so there'd actually be no way for Trump himself to defy rulings against him in any of these three cases. So, you know, I, I, I think it's a very real possibility pre, in a different case, in a different context. I just think that the peculiar posture of these cases is such that anything but a ruling for Trump on the merits probably does mean that Deutsche Bank and Mazars would comply. And then the question is just, you know, what has this all been about? What what are in these records that the president has been trying so hard to, you know, to keep out of public eye? I want to switch gears again, Professor, and ask you about something that you mentioned before that you wrote your thesis on, uh, the sort of less well-known trials following World War I. And you have written about how the trials after World War II were much more successful and also much better known, the Nuremberg trials. But then you also make this statement. You say, we are blind to the fact that Nuremberg was an unrepeatable success. How come? Well, I think Nuremberg was such a different situation in a couple different respects. So first, you know, keep in mind, late 1945, there is no German government 
um, right? That, you know, Germany or what was Germany is being jointly administered by the British, the French, the Americans, and the Soviets. And so, you know, basically whatever the four powers wanted, they got. There was no negotiation with the local government. There was no haggling over witnesses or suspects or evidence. And so, you know, Nuremberg was unique from a logistical perspective in that it was the only time in any of these modern war crimes trials where everything the government, the relevant government, the relevant actor, the tribunal needed was already in its possession. As compared to the World War I trials, where one of the real problems that hobbled the proceedings from the get-go was that the Dutch, um, the Dutch government didn't want to turn over Kaiser Wilhelm, um, who was, you know, in exile in, I think, Dorn. And so, you know, the just logistically from the get-go, the Allies had all the evidence, they had all the defendants, they had access to witnesses. And so it was just a much easier production from a foreign policy perspective. There weren't fraught negotiations over who could go into which country to investigate which thing. In contrast, right, those sort of logistical hurdles beguiled the World War I trials. They've caused dramatic complications for the Yugoslavian and Rwandan war crimes tribunals. And we've seen them be a huge problem, you know, for the International Criminal Court, especially now with the, you know, ICC's nascent investigation into war crimes in Afghanistan. So I just I think it was just it was a unique historical fortuity born out of circumstance. Do the Nuremberg trials and the particular circumstances that allowed for that success have any lessons for the future post some extreme conflict for that kind of similar uh, application of justice? I think if there's a lesson pre- to me, it's that you really do need either, right? One of two things. You need you know, that kind of complete unconditional surrender by the aggressor party or you need some kind of real international consensus where no country can really balk at evidentiary requests. No country can sort of hold, you know, witnesses hostage to other, you know, foreign policy goals. And, you know, I think one of the real obstacles the ICC has had in its, you know, now 20 years on the books has been that there's nowhere near the same kind of international consensus. And most of the cases it's investigating are in context in which there was no unconditional surrender. And so at least some of the hostile parties still have some degree of power in the relevant countries. And I think that's, you know, that's a huge difference. It makes it dramatically more complicated logistically. It makes it dramatically more fraught as a matter of international politics. And, you know, until and unless we see really some kind of real international consensus on that front, you know, I think Nuremberg is going to look more and more like an outlier to the much more troubled and difficult history of war crimes trials elsewhere. You tweeted something recently. Uh, It was was a short tweet, three words, but it spoke volumes. I just want to end on asking you to elaborate. You said, I miss nuance. You know, we talk a lot about the death of expertise, the death of truth. How does nuance play into that? You know, I, I just think that there are so many interesting, hard legal and policy questions that the United States faces even during normal times, and especially during abnormal times like this one. It used to be that the fights were over, you know, a couple of what now look like inches in retrospect, where we'd have really, really, you know, deeply joined debates about the best way forward, you know, whether it was for Guantanamo or foreign intelligence surveillance or, you know, military preparedness. And I just think that for better or for worse, and frankly, to me, for worse, we spent so much of the last three and a half years dumbing everything down and going back to principles that ought not to be contestable about how government's supposed to work, about the role of the president, about the separation of powers, that 
what used to be the linchpin of real academic discourse now looks like sort of millimeters of debate and millimeters of distance between people who otherwise agree on basic rule of law conceptions. In that universe where nothing matters other than which tribe you're a part of, and when you know nothing matters about legal arguments other than whether you have enough votes in the relevant body to win them, I think that's dangerous and fleeting. And it's deeply myopic to me for folks who might be benefiting in the short term from the demise of nuance to not appreciate how just as quickly that could be used against them in the future. That's what keeps me up at night more than anything else about this administration. Do you think post this administration, there will be a return of rigor and nuance? Or once it dies, it's dead for, forever. Don't, don't say that. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I think that, but I have to hope it. And I have to think that part of my job is to help fight for that. And I have to hope that we'll get back to a point where institutions actually have value in themselves, where we have the separation of powers at least as much as we have the separation of parties. But you know, it's not going to happen overnight. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to think about, to fight for, to strive for a world in which things are a little more complicated than, you know, should I or should I not drink Lysol to cure myself of coronavirus? Do you think this is a good time for people to go to law school? I think it is a fascinating time for people to go to law school. I I do think that anyone thinking about going to law school should always have some answer to the question, why? I mean, I come from a family of lawyers. And even for me, it was really important to know why I wanted to go to law school, not just because it's an interesting time and these are interesting questions, but what I actually wanted to do with my law degree. And I think, you know, now is a, is a great time to go to law school if you think these are questions you want to devote your life to, or if you think these are debates you want to be part of. But if you want to go to law school just because you want to fight with people for three years, you know, I can think of other ways to spend $140,000, $150,000. So I think it's always, it's a very personal choice that I think folks sometimes don't personalize enough. Professor Steve Vladek, thank you again for being on the show and good luck with everything in Texas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Steve Vladek and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.